Welcome to The Outpouring with Executive Pastor Bob Oliver of the New Covenant Church of Philadelphia. Join me as we head into service. Welcome back for part two of Suffering in Isolation. I want to encourage you to like us on Facebook, follow us, subscribe to our YouTube channel, share this, have a watch party. Your friends and family and acquaintances who you know will benefit from this, who've been suffering in silence, who've been suffering in isolation, open them up to this information. Our objective is to open the veil and allow people to be free and to be rid of shame. Uh, this topic was fascinating for me personally. I hope it was for you also today. I'm back with Dr. Granham and we're gonna talk about uh, two areas in particular. We may uh, go in some additional directions, but certainly we're gonna talk about suicide, suicide ideation, and we're gonna talk about uh, rumination, the dwelling on thoughts, which tend to take us deeper and deeper in a direction that we don't wanna go. But as promised, we're gonna begin with the questions that you asked. Uh, the first question, Pastor and Dr. Granham, are there any communities of faith that have successfully impacted the suicide rate among young people? Uh, Dr. Granham, I'll throw that to you first. Well, you know, when we think about communities of faith, that's really more your area than mine. <laughs> but I will say that, um, you know, this question is interesting for me because in a sense, I, I almost hear it as equi equivalent of asking, are there any communities of faith that have successfully impacted the cancer rate? Mm. Right. And so it's interesting because we really, uh, the way that we tend to think about the kinds of thoughts, the kinds of experiences that would lead to suicide, it seems to be in the, the scope of what we do in church, you know, faith communities. And of course, that is a big part of it. But really, we're talking about mental health. And so it's important to be pulling in health care as part of that conversation. I, I think it's, it's really important, especially when we're talking about suicide, to make sure that we are putting all the resources that we can and make available to people to get that successfully and adequately and effectively treated. And typically, the community of faith may well be a very big part of it for a couple reasons. One is community. I mean, when people are feeling suicidal, a lot of times they're feeling isolated, and we're talking about suffering and isolation, right? And so to the degree that they are able to stay connected to their community, whether it's a faith community or any other community, they are stronger, and we know that based on research. The second part is faith, right? And so the, the core of faith, you know, even as it's talked about in Scripture, is about the things that we don't see. Um, having a sense that something that I don't see can be true and real and relevant. And so when I am feeling so despondent and in such despair to the point of being suicidal, there are things that I have basically now become unable to see. Maybe I'm unable to see that there is a future. Right. Maybe I'm unable to see that I'm loved. Maybe I'm unable to see that I have something to contribute. And so the faith in these things that I cannot see is a way of kind of moving me toward those things. And the community of faith can come alongside you to help to support, help to pray, help to encourage, um, help to normalize. Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the ways that I can imagine communities of faith supporting people who may be suicidal. But, but you have you know, done a lot of counseling yourself and you may have thoughts around this. Yes, I'll, I'll uh, build on what you said. In, in our first segment, we talked about uh, a spectrum versus mm -hmm binary, uh, black and white, either or, this or that. And there are, uh, in suicide, there's 
suicide ideation, there's suicide attempts, and then there's the actual success of making it happen, if you could call it mm -hmm. success. Um, but I can tell you, in faith communities, all of those exist. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about a, uh, a situation probably about six months ago, a prominent pastor on the West Coast, mega church, uh, committed suicide. And his social media posts were made public. And you could see that he was crying out. There were things in his posts like the pressure of having to be at conventions, having to have a broad pre presence on social media in order to be relevant. In his mind, the only way he could be relevant in modern Christendom is to be popular mm -hmm. and to be out there. He didn't want to do that but he anymore, but he knew no other way out except to take his life, which was devastating for his wife and for his children and the faith community. But it brings uh, me to this point, and that is, as uh, you mentioned, Dr. Brandon, that faith is about seeing something. And the definition of faith is the evidence of things hoped for. So hope is really important. Mm -hmm. The example of cancer and depression. When people get a diagnosis of cancer, which is still the most devastating diagnosis one can get, it's not, and that's proven by uh, research, the literature is filled with it. Although heart disease is the leading cause of death, the most devastating diagnosis is cancer. Mm -hmm. But there are more and more people living with cancer. Mm -hmm. They live with it. When people are diagnosed with cancer, they want to fight. They want to live. And medicine and innovation has improved, and outcomes are much better. But when you contrast that with depression, people lose the fight. Mm -hmm. They want to die. It's the only disease where people don't fight to live. It takes away your will. To live. And so while I can't answer directly the question for confidentiality purposes, and no church would, I can tell you along that spectrum, it exists. And people respond to inspiration, compassion, and encouragement. And there are people, just like people live with cancer, I promise you, there are people living with suicide ideation. Mm -hmm. And the idea gets dimmer and dimmer. The more they're inspired, the more they're encouraged, the more hopeful they are. And so that's why we want to be a ministry that imparts hope, because that's the evidence. The evidence of things hoped for allows us to see, and life is about purpose. And when I'm depressed, I lose my sense of purpose. And then I look for a way out, and suicide is never a good way out. The next question, do you think, this is definitely for you, do you think Dr. Jill would consider providing breathing videos? And you can talk about your fee structure later, but <laughs> breathing videos. Well, you know, I hate to reinvent the wheel. There are actually a lot of video, videos out there that walk you through different types of breathing and we will make sure that there are some resources posted for you to refer to. Um, so the, the idea here is there are different types of breathing that you can do to target particular things. So for example, if you're having difficulty with insomnia, you have difficulty going to sleep at night, um, maybe you, your mind is just going at night and you can't relax or you can go to sleep, but you find yourself waking up in the middle of the night and you can't get back to sleep. So there are certain breathing exercises you can do to help to trigger that process in your body to allow you to sleep. Um, there are breathing exercises that you can teach your children to do to help them calm down when they're upset. So, you know, when people are upset or kind of worked up, we like to tell them to relax. And um, I recently saw a social media posts about this and, and why that 
that word or that instruction is often annoying to people, right? Mm. Like, if you're mad, you don't really want to be told relax, right? Uh, because it may feel like you're invalidating my feelings. Right. So when your children are having a meltdown or acting out, saying relax may not, or calm down may not be helpful, but if you have taught them a breathing exercise that you can walk them through in that moment, that's a way of actually helping them to relax and not, um, not triggering or not bringing out their defensiveness or their resistance the way a term like relax or calm down might do. So I encourage you to, to go to YouTube. Um, there are lots of options there. There are also a lot of mobile apps for Android or iOS that can show you different breathing exercises. Um, and I, I will leave it at that. Okay. So that will do. I, I just had a thought as you were saying, the, the barriers that go up when you say relax, I can see that. The mm -hmm. next time David asks him, I'm going to not say relax. <laughs> say, Dr. Jillian Graham said, don't say that. So what I'm going to say is, shut up. <laughs> Uh, hopefully that won't offend them. <laughs> so here's the third and final question. What can we do as a ministry? Can we open some buildings and ask some volunteers, retired teachers, and give some hours, to give some hours, uh, a few days a week, to help tutor children and families? I'll, I'll respond to that. We, there is an initiative that uh, I'm working on with uh, Elder Lawanda Morris around closing the achievement gap. Uh, Sam is involved and a few others. I brought together a coalition to begin thinking about it and framing it. Uh, we have access to Dr. Height, uh, another organization called Sacred Spaces. Uh, so it's in the works. Uh, for us, it's about timing. And so you will hear more about it, I promise. Uh, it's something that uh, is dear, uh, near and dear to us. Uh, the response from the coalition has been very, very positive, uh, not just nonprofits, but I've had uh, several pastors uh, who are interested, and so you will hear more about it. So the short answer is yes, we can and we will do something. Uh, it's about timing. There's sensitivity uh, with the COVID uh, environment. I was talking to a pastor friend um, recently who did something um, in their building and someone was positive. Everyone had to be quarantined. Mm -hmm. I have another good friend who's having services and nine or 10 people were positive that they know of. So now they're tracing everyone. Mm -hmm. So we just want to be circumspect and do it the right way. It's not if we will do it, it's when. Mm -hmm. And so now to transition uh, to our uh, conversation about uh, the parts and maybe the spectrum of suicide. Mm -hmm. So maybe let's begin with suicide ideation. The number of people who have it um, would probably startle most of us. I saw some uh, data that said that we are right now at rates of suicide that is higher than it's been in the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. And whenever you think about suicide, trailing it, and actually the forerunner is ideation. There are more people who think about it than attempt it. Mm -hmm. And there are more people who think about it than actually do it, because some people have multiple, multiple attempts. Absolutely. Yes. And, and you're absolutely right. The, the percentages in terms of the um, ideation and then what we would call completed suicides, um, if you imagine a pyramid, it's really just the top of that pyramid that's the completed suicides. Mm. Um, most of the pyramid is ideation um, or even attempts, right? And so, you know, when we talk about suicidal ideation, the thoughts of suicide, there are really two, from a clinical perspective, there are two types of ideation that we might think about. Now, as a lay person, you typically think about what we call active suicide, active suicidal ideation, which is when you're thinking, you know, I want to kill myself. I want to end my life, those kinds of thoughts. But then there's passive suicide, um, suicidal ideation. And the passive ideation is more of a wanting to be dead. 
And so it's not necessarily I want to kill myself, but I want to be dead or even I don't want to be here anymore. I wish I could go to sleep and not wake up. Um, I wish I could just check out of everything, you know. So that sense of not wanting to be here anymore is passive because you're not actually thinking about doing something. But it's, a, it's also suicidal ideation because you're wanting your life to be over. So that would probably be the first step in terms of the progression, the passive ideation, then the active ideation of I want to end my life or I want to kill myself, I want to die. And then from there, we're talking about the progression to where it may become an attempt. And so, you know, from a perspective of assessing suicidality, you know, we're going to be looking at different things, whether people are thinking about specifics about how they might want to kill themselves, um, whether they actually have a plan to do that, whether they have an actual desire or it's just a thought, right? Because we have thoughts about things that we don't necessarily want to do. And so all of these things have to be kind of teased apart um, to get a sense of the severity, but also to know how to intervene and treat. Um, and then progressing from there, we get to suicide attempts. So, and, you know, I'm not surprised. I haven't seen that specific um, statistic that you quoted about where we are now being the highest in 50 years, but that makes sense because the suicide rate has been growing for the last at least 10, 20 years or so across age groups. And particularly for men, suicide is more common for men than women. And suicide attempts are more fatal for men than for women. And the reason for that, or I should say part of the reason for that is about the types of ways that people may make attempts. Men are more likely to choose deadlier methods, such as guns. Or guns. Yeah, guns are, are, are the most common for men. Um, whereas women may do something that's more of a, an overdose of some type. So pills or alcohol or something like that. And so those are less fatal. You know, you may be able to go to the hospital, you know, maybe you didn't take as much as would cause your death. And so there tends to be more of an opportunity for your life to be saved. Whereas with guns, obviously they're a lot more lethal. So that's part of the reason for the uh, difference. And also it has to do with life stages and life environments. So for men, generally speaking, the suicide rate increases as people age. And so, you know, if we think about the things that are going on in your life, if you've been working for a long time, you retire, maybe have health problems, maybe lose a spouse, and those things are more likely to lead to the despair and hopelessness that you talk about. And hopelessness is one of the key uh, signs, warning signs that we would look for in terms of suicide. For women, it peaks more around middle age or so. And so that may be more about a time of increased stress. So maybe adult children and aging parents. Maybe you're still working, but you're starting to have health problems. Maybe there are all these different things that are kind of coming together. And so it's more of the stress and demands of life that may take someone in that direction. But I, I do want to kind of back up a little bit to say that you know, within the faith community and, and even just Christian theology, you know, we have a lot of thoughts around suicide. Mm. And I feel like it's important for us to talk about some of the ways that we think about suicide, some of the theology around it, mm. because that is part, I think, of what is making a situation where people are suffering in isolation. Mm. Yes, because they're ashamed. I, I can tell you growing up, I grew up in a holiness tradition, and uh, I was taught from a young age that it is an unforgivable sin. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was, I guess, designed to keep you away from it. 
But apart from that, it was not uh, faith-like uh, in your walk to have anything other than joy, you know, the righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost mm -hmm. um, is all that was acceptable. And so you would tend to uh, suppress those things if you were a part of that, um, of that culture. And the broader culture, um, in terms of what you were supposed to be as a, as a young boy or a young man, the strength that you have to tough it out, you don't whine, you don't, and so you hold these things in and then you reach a tipping point mm -hmm. or a breaking point. Mm -hmm. So I could see how in men who are less expressive, mm -hmm. who tend to, um, in plain sight, suffer. And when they cry out, there is no sound because we've learned to cover it because it's not manly. Mm -hmm. And there are things that you are, if you're in danger, you're pushed further into it. If I ever went into my house as a, yeah, a preteen and said to my father, I'm, I, I want to stay in because I just had a fight. The next word would be, get back out there and go confront your, whoever it is who's doing it. You, you don't allow that to happen. So you learn as a young child that you must attempt to overcome anything. Even if it's bigger than you, you've got to be bigger and better. And so that suppression, when it, when it collides with your reality, you then look for a way out because you never learned how to cope. And I think we need to do a better job teaching people how to cope. And the theology, you know, I've never seen in the Bible where it's an unforgivable sin. I've never seen it. There's only two unforgivable sins, blasphemy against the Holy Ghost and unforgiveness. Mm -hmm. If I don't forgive you, God won't forgive me. But I believed it because mm -hmm. it was taught to me by people who were giants in the faith who I respected. I don't know where that theology came from. I know some of the logic mm -hmm. is that I'm playing God if I take my own life. And I can't be repentant if I do that. Mm -hmm. So those were some of the basis, but it doesn't make it right. And it makes it hard for people to heal. Yeah. Very difficult. Yeah. And, and it makes it extremely hard for the families of those who've died by suicide. Because then they're left wondering about the state of their loved one um, afterlife. And it, it can create a lot of additional suffering. And, you know, part of it is even in, in the, the language that we use, right? So we, we typically say, you know, so-and-so committed suicide. But when do we, when else do we use the word committed? We use it when we're talking about crimes, mm. right? I committed a crime. Um, and so it, it's already kind of maybe subconsciously, but the, in, in our language, we framed it as something bad that you do. I, I would say that suicide and suicidal ideation are, in my sense, more symptoms of a condition that's going on within your emotions, within your mind. And so in the same way that a diagnosis of um, diabetes if severe enough, can lead to losing a limb. Diagnosis of depression, if untreated and becoming severe enough, that can result in suicide. It's, it's a symptom of a condition. It's not a thing that I decided to do. And it also is often talked about as, you know, the most selfish thing that someone can do. Mm. And I think that what is maybe you know, the understanding around that is, you know, here are the family and friends and people that knew this person now suffering because of this action. And yet, for someone who is in, at the state where they are close enough, where they might end their life by suicide, they're not able to access all of that. They're not, not able to access the love and care that may be there or the people that may be impacted. They may know that, that information may be there, 
but it's not able to penetrate in that moment because in that moment, it's really just about ending the pain and suffering. Right. And so, you know, as a kind of a very minor example, let's say if you and I are cooking, mm-hmm. right? And we are doing something, I'm at the stove, and all of a sudden, some grease pops out and hits me, and I go like this. And you happen to be right behind me, and I hit you. Mm-hmm. In that moment, I'm not trying to hit you. Right. I'm not even thinking about you. I'm just right. reacting to the pain. Right. And as, but you get hurt as a side effect or byproduct of my action. But I, in that moment, I just needed the pain to end. And unfortunately, it leaves you, families, loved ones, kind of tragically suffering and mm. questioning in, in the wake of that. It's a very excellent illustration. We had a funeral here about a year ago, and uh, Reverend Andrew actually preached the funeral. I remember being away, but I saw the obituary that the young man wrote himself. Mm. And it was a, it was a very moving uh, thing. And he, he was speaking to all the loved ones in his life because he probably knew that that inadvertent reaction would cause them pain. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I was thinking as you were talking um, about the lack of compassion in that theology that causes people to um, endure their pain alone. Um, after Judas um, had hung himself or whatever he did to take his life, the disciples were debating his judgment. And John wrote that Jesus didn't say what they said he said. And Jesus even said, what is that to you? Follow me. And I think that's instructive. There are some things that are for God and God only. And ours is to follow him. And so if I'm to follow someone who's been impacted and who has the pain of someone who committed suicide, I should show love. That's the theology that people should sense. And as the disciples were debating his faith and his judgment, Jesus didn't say this or that. He said, what is that to you? Follow me. Mm -hmm. And if we keep that in mind, we do well Mm -hmm. to follow him versus having this um, theology around where the person ends up. And it's generally, it's, I can only imagine, but I never want to think about the pain of thinking about eternal. I, I eulogize loved ones. And to think that they're in a place that is separated from God is painful. Mm-hmm. And I don't think as believers, we have the intention of causing pain. Mm -hmm. Your illustration is perfect. It's the hot grease and you hit someone. So I hope the the recognition that compassion and love should be imparted to those individuals. And now getting back to the the ideation Mm -hmm. and the thought and the attempts, the the pyramid, Mm -hmm. as we get closer uh, to the base of the pyramid, what can we as a faith community, as the first question was, do to rally around people. Now, you don't often know. We don't often know what to look for. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if in my home, someone is, uh, their personality is outgoing and they're interactive, and all of a sudden they become isolated. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have these acute bouts, but they always come out of it. Mm -hmm. If it persists, is there anything I could or should do? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right. You know, we, those who are around that person often can notice signs of that change. And so, you know, you see that there's a um, set of warning signs that you can look for uh, in terms of what the person is talking about. You know, they may start talking more about, you know, not wanting to be here. Even for children or youth, those themes might be showing up in their writings or stories, artwork things that are becoming a little darker, Mm. Um, their mood changes, um, change of of friendships. 
and you know their behavior, being more reckless can be one of the ways that that wish to die might show up, particularly in adolescence. So doing more risky things. Um, there, there's a, a way in which sometimes there's not a desire to uh, actively end your life by suicide, but almost place that responsibility on someone else. And so getting into conflicts where you might be likely to be killed is another way that sometimes people act mm. toward suicide. But to go back to your question about, you know, what, what can you do? I think first, as a, as a community of faith, we can start by bringing into our day-to-day -day life the full breadth of scripture. So by that I mean, you know, we have the book of Psalms that talks about a range of human emotions. And we read them, but we kind of read them in an isolated way or in a way that maybe allows us to be somewhat disconnected from that experience. But the despair, the distress in the Psalms, that might be something that really relates to how that loved one is feeling in that moment. So we can talk to them about that. We can even ask them about what they're feeling. Sometimes people don't want to bring up suicide because of the fear that you might put it in their minds. Right. And it's, it's an understandable fear, but if someone, is, if someone is not thinking about suicide, then they're not really at risk of you implanting that thought. More likely, they are thinking about it, but there's no opportunity to talk about it. Right. Um, and, and so I, I, I would say that we can kind of assume that there is more going on for other people than meets the eye because of the things that you talked about, our, our need to um, present with the righteousness, peace and joy, the need for men in particular to suppress emotions. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, to be told not to cry you know, starting with small children, right, right? right? And what does that do over time if you're constantly told that it's not okay for you to express how you feel? Mm. Where do those feelings go? They don't go away. Right. They're there. And at some point, if you're not opening up the valve to let that out periodically in safe ways, it's going to explode. Mm. And so talking to that person, asking them, are, are you thinking about suicide? I mean, it sounds like a very blunt question, but again, if you're able to open that dialogue, then you can respond to that. Mm. If you're not able to ask the question, likely they are not able to initiate that conversation mm. because sometimes our silence indicates that we're not comfortable talking about something. Mm. So if I feel like my parent or my friend or my spouse isn't comfortable with the idea that I might be suicidal, then I'm not going to initiate that conversation. Right. And so it's up to the persons around them at times to open that door. And how many people have the anguish of saying, didn't he know, didn't she know how much I love them? Didn't it, that's an empty feeling. And I hearken back to uh, the verse in 1 Kings 18 and 22 that we discussed in our first session mm -hmm. where Elijah said, I alone am left. And then he talked about the 450 prophets mm -hmm. uh, of Baal, which were Jezebel's prophets. And he got to a point where he said, Lord, it's enough. Take me out. That's the passive that you talked about, which is very clear now. He mm -hmm. didn't want to do it. He's like, mm -hmm. God, yeah. take me out. Mm -hmm. And God loved him so much. He wanted to take care of him. He told him what to do, and the chariot of fire came. But it occurred to me that God had a plan for dealing with Jezebel. 
but he didn't tell the prophet. Mm. A prophet who had revealed secrets. If he would have just held on, mm. the things that he thought were unbearable were going to be removed. And his successor, Elisha, never had to worry about that a day in his ministry because God took care of it. There are times when things in our lives seem unbearable Mm -hmm. and God is about to move them if Mm -hmm. we just have the patience to wait. It has nothing to do with spirituality because Elijah is one of the most revered prophets of all the things that he did in the presence of God. But he was despairing of life to the point where he said, God, take me out. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking, Lord, why didn't you tell him what you were going to do that may have encouraged him? So now I'm going to ask you who always, I've always seen you as an old soul, wiser than your years. When we served on the board of elders years ago, I used to say, you are a wise young elder. (laughs) And so now I want to tap into your old soul. Why do you think God didn't say to him, don't worry, I got this. I'm going to take care of Jezebel. But he allowed him to ruminate and to get to the place where God said, all right, I'm going to accommodate you. I'm going to, I'm going to take you out. But he didn't take him. It wasn't death as we know it, right? Mm-hmm. He took him up with the chariots yeah. of fire, but he took him out. Sometimes it seems like, God, just tell me what you're going to do. Why do you think that was withheld? Like you said, it wasn't death as we know it, right? Right. But God took Elijah out of his suffering. Mm -hmm. And it may have been an act of compassion Mm. on God's part to say, you know, you've served, you've, you've been obedient, and you've suffered. And yes, I may be able to let you know what is coming and encourage you. But maybe in that particular situation, the way that God chose to be um, responsive to mm. Elijah's pain was to remove that pain. Mm. You know, it, I, I don't necessarily say that that is a, a, an exact analogy for what we may be experiencing right. you know, in the same way. But often there is a need to, to be removed from that source of suffering. Mm. So... For example, for some, re- for some people that may be, I need to go to a hospital. Mm. I need to get out of this environment or whatever is happening that is making the suffering so intense that it feels unbearable. And so I need to go to a psychiatric hospital, get some care, get some help. So that's a way in which a compassionate God may mm-hmm. allow us to be removed from our suffering. Mm -hmm. We also do things on our own to try to do that. Um, Checking out in different ways, some healthy, some less healthy. But even if we are not suicidal, there may be times when we just need to turn it off, right? right? Um, And so particularly during this pandemic, if you are finding yourself maybe watching a lot more TV than usual, or, you know, scrolling online a lot more, doing things that are kind of passive activities, part of that may be for you a way of checking out of the the stress, the suffering, the um, uncertainty, the pain, the tension that you're experiencing. And again, some of these strategies are more or less healthy than others, but we are not made to live in a state of continuous chronic pain and suffering and survive that. Mm. We're, we're, We're not made for that. We are made to be able to be resilient to that Mm. But we need to be able to, at times, step back away from that. Mm. Let's uh, dig into the resilience piece Mm -hmm. and uh, transition to rumination. Um, We were uh, looking in the Psalms, uh, and in particular, over the last couple of weeks, the Sons of Korah, which wrote 11 of the Psalms and presented them to the chief musician. And uh, there were times when there is this mood of despondency. Why is my soul cast down within me? And then it flips to hope in God. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Jeremiah, when he was in the pit, Jeremiah uh, 3, uh, I believe beginning at verse 20, it's the same thing. 
He has lost all hope. He's despairing. And then he says, and then I remember. And he starts talking about the mercies of God. And if it had not been for those mercies, they would have been consumed. His mercies are new every morning. It goes from the uh, rumination that takes us deeper into despair to changing the channel and having the kind of thoughtfulness that brings hope. Mm -hmm. And both of them, the sons of Korah and Jeremiah say, hope in God. In the depth of their despair, they were able to change the channel and say hope in God. From mm -hmm. a clinical perspective, can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I like that um, metaphor of changing the channel. And it, it makes me think about those old school radios where you know, it's kind of hard to find a signal. And so you're getting mostly static, but every once in a while you may get a glimpse of, okay, that's what I'm trying to find. It, it is probably more like that than here's the remote, let me change the channel. Mm. Right? Yes. Um, if it were that easy, we'd all be doing it. Right. <laughs> right. So the, the, the move toward... Um, a more positive kind of rumination, which often, as you talk about, starts with gratitude. And there's a lot of evidence that engaging in some kind of gratitude practice on a regular basis can really be helpful for dealing with those kinds of negative ruminations. And, you know, when we talk about gratitude, I like to go as specific as possible. So we're not just talking about I'm grateful for my family, my friends, for having a roof over my head. It could be, you know, these flowers are really beautiful this morning. I'm grateful that I get to sit here and enjoy the beauty of those flowers. Or my coffee this morning is at the perfect temperature, exactly what I, how I like it. I'm really grateful for this experience in this moment. So we're digging down into the day-to-day -day gratitudes that we can experience. And, and another part of that is really around the whole practice of mindfulness. And so th there are a lot of, of components, so I'm going to try to keep it pretty simple. But essentially, you know, mindfulness is about being present, being present in the moment. And often we are going through life in a way in which we're not present. So I could be sitting here talking to you, but really thinking about my grocery list and what I'm going to get from when I stop at the store later on, or thinking about um, something that happened five minutes ago or yesterday. So all these things can be going on while I'm sitting here having a conversation with right. you. And mindfulness says, you know, if I'm able to, in a sense, turn down the volume on those external things and be here, I'm more likely to have a more positive experience of this moment, to feel more connected to you, to feel more at ease. And all of those things can serve to really strengthen my, my mood, my mental health. But also mindfulness is often conflated with meditation. Mm. And the way that I think of them are almost two sides of, of the same coin. So meditation is really more around the kinds of things that you're talking about, negative rumination of thoughts, you know, thoughts that are coming up over and over again. We want to try to focus our mind uh, in a different way, maybe by meditating um, on something in particular, like a scripture or mm -hmm. something that we're grateful for, mm -hmm. or just that, the practice of meditation. Mm -hmm. And it's important to keep in mind that a lot of people may say, well, I tried that, that didn't work, or I tried that, I can't do it. So the goal here is not for you to be able to think about, I don't know, the candle for three minutes straight without your mind wandering. The practice of meditation is the practice of bringing your mind back. Mm. So there's a, a way in which we can kind of imagine it Let's say if you are flying from L.A. to Philadelphia, mm -hmm. right? I've done that flight many, many times. Mm -hmm. If you're flying from L.A. to Philadelphia, the pilot 
doesn't just say, okay, here's a direction and go straight there. It's a constant back and forth of adjusting, adjusting, adjusting. So there may be very little time when they are exactly going toward the destination. Generally speaking, they're always off course. Right. But the practice is to bring it back. And so when we're meditating, the practice is not, oh, I messed up because I started thinking about something else 10 minutes in. The practice is I noticed it 10 seconds in and I brought it back. And yes, it may happen again in the next 10 seconds, but I'm going to bring it back again. And the more that we do that, the more that we can train our mind in a different way. Because what those ruminations are is basically a thought pattern that we have practiced. It's a habit. Right, right. right? It's a habit of thought. And habits are easy to do. So the more that we practice something, the easier it is. And so if we're trying to do something different, yes, it takes a lot of effort. But over time, it will get easier and easier. The challenge is that most people get so frustrated in the beginning that they never get to where it gets easier. Right. And so they don't get to experience the benefits of that. Right. So that's meditation. The other side of that coin, mindfulness, I think of that as getting into your body. And so a lot of times it's around your senses. And the, the way that I like to explain that is that rumination is happening in your head. Mm-hmm. Anxiety happens in your head, mm-hmm. right? It's your thoughts. So what I want to do rather than trying to change my thoughts is that I want to disconnect from my thoughts and focus on my body. Mm-hmm. So for example, if we were to do a little mindfulness exercise right now, um, I'm going to ask you to choose a color. Mm-hmm. You can tell me. <laughs> this is not like a pick a card thing. <laughs> blue. Blue. Do you see any blue in the room right now? Okay. Blue shirt. I see blue on the flag. Do you see any other blue? Yes. I see blue on the poster. Okay. And I see um, blue on your sock. So we could play that game back and forth, right? Right. And what that does is focus on our, our sense of sight. Right. Getting into our body through our sense of sight. Mm-hmm. And it takes me out of my head. Right. Because we're not thinking in that moment. We're looking around. Right. We're scanning. Right. And so that's a way of kind of grounding us in our body. That's just one example. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, in, in both situations, the goal is to reduce the rumination, but one does it by trying to, you know, as you put it, change the channel. Right. And one does it by turning the TV off altogether. Right. Right. Wow. Very insightful. That, that's very uh, practical. I like the analogy about the pilot. You know, and oftentimes, you'll hear the pilot get on and say, we're about to encounter some turbulence. Mm. And it's comforting when they say, but we're going to change direction. We're going to go around it. And if I just knew how mm. to go around the turbulence in my life and then get back on course, mm-hmm. what uh, I'd have many more uh, up days uh, than down days. The, uh, the thought of the transistor, well, transition, uh, and for those of you who are uh, teenagers, there's a radio that transitions, and it's a transistor, which means, you know, we have the voice activated, and you just shift the channel this way. It's instant. Well, the, what the transistor, the difference is, when you're turning, you get static, 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 but you know you've landed when it's clear. You mm-hmm. get to a channel, whether it's AM or FM. And so this analogy of changing the channel on a transistor radio is that there may be times when you're trying to transition your thought from this pattern in your thought life of things that are negative. There may be static, but keep turning because you will get to a point where it's clear. And when you reach that point of clarity, like the pilot who's going around turbulence, or the person who's changing the channel, Mm -hmm. it will open things up uh, for you. Mm -hmm. Um, So if the problem is rumination, then mindfulness is the solution. 
And you've just a, given a, a, a solution. A solution. A solution, not <laughs> the solution. See, that's why you're the, the doctor and I'm not. <laughs> so are there other things that can be done when we find ourselves in a state of the sons of Korah or Jeremiah or David uh, or Elijah and so many of our faith heroes who were there? Um, what are some of the other practical things that we can do to um, move ourselves into a better state of mind. Okay. In thinking about rumination in yes. particular? And maybe it's even a state of being and not just state of mind. Mm. I like the way you separated the mind uh, and the body. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, often when we have rumination, we have particular thoughts that are coming up. So for example, let's say if I am isolating alone during the pandemic and I feel I'm so lonely, um, nobody's called me, nobody's come to visit, nobody cares about me. I probably have those exact thoughts over and over and over, almost the same way, the same statements. And so those statements can become very powerful as this sense in my, in my psyche, um, this sense of despondency, this sense of despair. And so what we want to do is make that specific. And so this is where it's probably a little bit different from how we would have been taught, you know, in Sunday school in terms of how to deal with these things. So from a clinical perspective, you might say, okay, write them down. Um, write down exactly what the thought is. And maybe I'm going to take that thought, nobody cares about me, and I'm going to write it a hundred times. Mm. Um, I'm going to maybe say it out loud, but then I'm going to sing it. Mm. I'm going to say it in a silly voice. I'm going to write it in crayon. I'm going to manipulate that thought in a way that uh, detangles the power from it, mm. right? Because now it's just words. Right. And, and that's what our, our thoughts are just, you know, words that kind of come up in our head. We tend to think that they are real, mm. but they're not real. They're just thoughts in the way that we kind of know that our dreams aren't real. And we don't think, well, I dreamed this, so it must be true, typically. Right. Um, but are our thoughts in the same way? You know, they are a, a production that comes up in our mind, but they are not necessarily true or real. Mm. So sometimes we need to do things that remind us that these are just words. Mm. And it's not always easy. So, you know, we probably have all had the experience where we've had a dream. Let's say you're fighting with your spouse or your friend, sibling, and you wake up and then you're, oh, okay, that was a dream, but you're still mad at that person. Right? <laughs> <laughs> And you know it was a dream, but you still have the emotion right. of being mad at them, which right. is, in a sense, completely irrational, right. right? Right. So in the same way, you know, it's not always easy to disconnect from our thoughts, even when we know that they're not real. Right, right. You know, let alone right. when we are believing them. But sometimes we need to do that because then it opens up space for us to have a broader, um, more full story that we can tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because maybe the thought, nobody cares about me, nobody cares about me, is so prevalent that when someone does call us, we have a way of making that experience fit the story that we've already committed to. Oh, they were just calling because they felt obligated. They don't really care. Right. Because I'm so committed to this story, right. nobody cares about me. But if I'm able to take some of the power out of that story, then I can open myself up to, yeah, maybe a lot of times I'm here alone and nobody's calling, but sometimes I do get a call. Right. And so to be able to have space for those experiences that don't fit the dominant story that our thoughts are telling us. That's excellent. Um, as we tie all this together, what advice would you give to those who are struggling with mental wellness, and I intentionally did not call it mental illness. I'm calling it mental wellness because 
The stigma is with one. The other is our aspiration to be whole, to be well, to be clear uh, in our thought and in our entire being. So what advice would you give? One, I would say to keep in mind that we're all at different places. So if we think about our physical health, you know, there may be one way in which you are healthier than I am, another way in which I'm healthier than you. Um, and so it's not a one item kind of thing that designates whether we're, how mentally well we are mm. or how mentally um, challenged we are in terms of our mental health. Mm-hmm. And so there may be some ways in which we're doing really well. And so it's good to focus on those things. So for example, it could be that um, I feel really, really down all the time, but I am going to work every day. Now, obviously there's a way in which I'm severely suffering, but there's also a way in which I am experiencing a degree of resilience in being able to get up and go to work. Um, Someone else might not be all that sad, but they're not able to motivate themselves to work. Mm. Right. So it shows up in different ways. And so we need to be able to be compassionate to ourselves, but also compassionate to other people. Mm -hmm. And our compassion for other people often, particularly within the faith community, that can often exceed our compassion for ourselves. Mm. And so if we're able to ask ourselves the thing that you're saying the thing that I'm saying to myself right now, would I say this to a friend? Would I say this to a loved one? That might be a sign that maybe we need a little bit more self-compassion to speak to ourselves um, kindly, to speak to ourselves with words of grace, recognizing that we're struggling. Mm. And so when we're struggling, we may need encouragement as opposed to criticism, even if Mm. it's coming from ourselves. Wonderful. There was a uh, time in a place called Ziglag where David was under tremendous duress, not just because he had lost, uh, in, in a very real sense, his family, his children, his wives, but all the men who had been thicker than thieves with him had turned on him and were ready to stone him to death. Even though he was with them, out to battle. Mm. They held him responsible. Heavy Mm. is the head that wears the crown. Mm. And so the Bible says David encouraged himself in the Lord. And what you were just saying Mm. to all of us is that there are moments in our walk where we've got to learn to encourage ourselves. I'm going to ask every one of you right now to light up the chat room. I want you to write words of encouragement for Dr. Jillian Granham, who have encouraged every one of us. And I want you right where you are to begin to pray for her. But I want to see it in the chat room. I want to hear your fingers. I want chatter because the grace that has been bestowed upon your life is for a time like this. I told you in private, and I'm now going to say it publicly. This is your season. God has prepared you for this time. Your intellect, your grace, your transparency is a blessing to the kingdom of God. And there's so many people who need for you to pour out what God has poured into you. And I sense right now that you are going to flourish. You're going to blossom. You're going to be a fruitful vine because you have been patient. You've endured, but now God is going to use you as a vessel to be poured out like a drink offering. And so we bless you today and we say, may the grace of God be multiplied upon your life. May your lips be fruitful. May everyone you touch be blessed. May they know that the presence of God has come near to them through you. And although you are a carrier of the burdens of many, I pray today that God would make your burdens light. He would make the things that are hard easy for you. 
as you've ministered to people, as you've ministered to all of us. And so today, with much gratitude, we honor you and may the grace of God continue to be upon your life. Thank you so much, Pastor Oliver. It, it's been a, a gift to be here with you and to, with all of you. And I hope that there is something that you've heard in these conversations that you can take away with and that can really be meaningful in your life. And I'll put a shout out to those of you who are online in the chat. I would like you to put a word of encouragement to yourself. Mm-hmm. What you need to hear right now, go ahead and put it in the chat because we're gonna start now by putting into action what we're talking about to begin now in encouraging yourself and putting it out into the universe of the World Wide Web mm-hmm. that what those words are will be what you experience. So thank you and God bless you. God bless you. God keep you. And now may the grace of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost, the sweet communion of the Spirit of God, rest, rule, and abide upon you. As God causes his face to shine on each one of you, may he give you peace. Go in peace, go in power, and keep the faith. Thank you for joining us in service today. We pray that this ministry has been a blessing to you and your family. To give your gift of love and help keep this ministry on the air, visit nccop.church giving for all of the ways that you can donate to the ministry. Thank you so much for your generosity and God's blessings until we meet again.